At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry. Two guests this week, uh, including uh, one who's been on this podcast many times, and it's always great to catch up with him. James Andrew Miller, the best-selling author of books on CAA, ESPN, and Saturday Night Live. He is the host of a new Origins project, which is a deep dive into the Cameron Crowe classic coming-of-age film, Almost Famous. Uh, Jim and I discuss uh, that five-part series on Almost Famous, which uh, is put up by Cadence 13, my podcast company. Uh, It's fantastic. Uh, he got pretty much, not pretty much, he got everybody from the film, Kate Hudson and Zoe Duchanel, Jimmy Fallon, Billy Crudup, Francis McDormand, et cetera. So we talk about uh, putting together that podcast. And then we get into what we always do in the sports media, deep uh, conversation on a number of things, including Colin Kaepernick's uh, Disney deal and how ESPN is going to handle the intersection of race and sports from now on. They have certainly changed um, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, how they have approached this both uh, on air as well as uh, through their uh, individual talent social media feeds. And then we finish up with a discussion on ESPN Radio and Mike Golick uh, in particular. Jim is followed by Kurt Streeter, the New York Times reporter and a fine reporter at that. He's done uh, just remarkable reporting on Maya Moore, the WNBA star who left professional basketball to help free a man she believed was wrongly convicted. And uh, Kurt just tells us about uh, reporting on that and how he got Maya Moore's trust, whether he expects Maya Moore to return. Phenomenal story. And so uh, I enjoyed this episode. It's a good one. Jim Miller to start and then Kurt Streeter to follow coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right. As I said at the top, uh, James Andrew Miller is very familiar to guests of this podcast. He... um, He's been on it many, many times. I always appreciate these conversations. He is, of course, the best-selling author of books on ESPN and CAA and Saturday Night Live. He is also the host of the Origins podcast, which uh, is a mega hit for my podcast company, Cadence 13. And Jim's latest project is a deep dive into the Cameron Crowe classic coming-of-age film, Almost Famous. We will start by talking about that and then head into some ESPN issues and uh it is my pleasure to welcome back uh, he's now become a titan of podcasting james andrew miller jim welcome back thank you so much thanks for having me jim uh i want to start with almost famous so you know when we have to you know we obviously have a relationship off air and when we talked before you were trying to produce this podcast telling me where i should start and that i should not start with your new uh production but that's where i want to start because almost famous is a uh it's a film that means a lot to a lot of people. It's arguably the greatest, I think, sort of music journalism film ever made. It's a great coming-of-age film, and you were able to land 
all these crazy mega famous people. So here we'll, we'll start with that. So you've done a couple of these origin stuff now, Sex in the City, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Why for you was Almost Famous kind of rife for exploration for the kind of stuff you do podcast wise? Well, it was, uh, we were starting the new movie category for origins and, you know, these things are deep dives as, uh, as the thing goes. And I knew it was something that, um, it had to be something that I really cared about and was passionate about. And I love Cameron and his work. And this was a movie that I made a point of showing to my daughter on her 12th birthday, because I think it's such a great port of entry into the world of music, which she already loved, but also it's a great vehicle for talking with your kids about, you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll. And um, I just think it's a beautifully well-made made film. I think it's, you know, nothing against Jerry Maguire, but it's, uh, it's my favorite camera movie. So it just seemed like everything was lined up for that. And I was, you know, just felt really blessed that, that Cameron and Kate Hudson and Billy Crudup and Francis McDormand and Jason Lee, I even asked Peter Frampton and Nancy, Hart, Nancy Wilson from Heart if they would participate because they had um, been played a big part in the music and also conducted what was called Rock School for the uh, actors. So and Patrick Fugit, Fugit and Zoe Deschanel. So, I mean, everybody came on board. And it was great um, to, to be able to – Jimmy Fallon. We, we were great to be able to talk to everybody. So how does one go about um, how does one go about getting all these people? Uh, do you have to go through? Obviously, I mean, you have a relationship with Cameron Crow. He's willing to do it, so that make I imagine that opens a ton of doors if possible. But did you um, did did you have to go through their agencies? Were you, were you able to go through Cameron? Because you you pretty much landed everybody, which to me. Um, is in itself as much of a feed as the, the interviews themselves when you actually got them. Well, I mean, you know, look, this is, this happens on my books as well. I mean, you go to Dick's Spring Goods, you buy knee pads, you get on your knees and you beg, um, you know, you, um, I think that, you know, the one thing that I didn't want to do, uh, and I wouldn't do this to Cameron is, Hey Cameron, I really want to do this. Oh, great. You're, you're cooperating. Can you get on the phone with Kate? Can you call uh, Jason Lee? Can you call, uh, you know, your ex-wife, Nancy? So I think it was incumbent upon me to, um, you know, go out and, and get these people. I, I think obviously one of the things that happens in this situation is they want to know if Cameron is cooperating. So the fact that Cameron was, was uh, the proverbial wind in my back. But no, you got to, you know, I'm going through this right now with the HBO book. You you got to, you got to get people you know, yourself and you got to, I mean, sometimes you can get help um, through, you know, relationships you have in the industry and stuff, but uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a heavy lift, but it's, it's, as you say, it's worth it. One of the things that I, yeah, I've listened to the first episode and one of the things that's pretty clear is that, um, is that the actors like really love this experience. Like this for them was an important film, particularly Kate Hudson, who at least in that first episode was really, really phenomenal about just uh, sort of like even equating her own life to the experience of being an almost famous. How did you, um, on a macro level, how did you find these actors and actresses? Um, uh, how did you find them to be regarding their experiences as being part of this film? Well, I think that was, um, another element to wanting to do almost famous because the truth is we live in truly shitty times and 
I wanted this podcast to be almost like a coping mechanism, like the movie is itself in a way, um, just something that clears your mind and makes sure that good news doesn't travel slow. And so one of the things that I knew already about the production and the shoot um, and the way that these people interact with each other is that there was no faking. This was, you know, when you hear these people talking about their dynamic and their affection for each other and what this movie really meant to them, this is not bullshit. I mean, sometimes you'll, you'll talk to actors or a director or somebody and they'll, and they'll try and put a good face on something. And then meanwhile, you, you know, you later do some more reporting, you find out that the three months on location shoot was like a ground war in Southeast Asia and everybody hated each other. And this was not the case. And I, and I really love that because um, it really comes through uh, the way that they had a lot of respect for each other. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about Almost Famous is that I talked in episode one about originally there had been some talk early on after the script was done of Meryl Streep, Brad Pitt, and Natalie Portman in the, in, in the key roles. And, you know, that would have been an interesting movie. But one of the things that happened is that you get people like Billy and Kate, who at that time was only 19, and Patrick Fugit, who was uh, 15 and just a kid who was just skateboarding around in Utah, and Jason Lee before he had become uh, a much bigger star. And uh, I think that there was kind of like a, not only an equality, but it was a real harmony between everybody. I mean, it was Zoe Deschanel's second movie, her first one, Mumford, was I don't think even released at the time that this was shooting. And so I think everybody kind of grew up together on this movie. And Cameron is the kind of person that, um, particularly the kind of director that artists want to work for. It's one of the reasons why uh, people, he, he sees the, he gets the casting that he does and people come back to him uh, when he, when he asks for them. And so to create the kind of the cultural DNA of this shoot and this movie, it turns out that the great like vibes and the ethos of almost famous itself was replicated amongst the, the crew and the cast and the dynamic with Cameron. So that was really, that was really cool to report. The, um, the one person who doesn't appear, obviously he was a major figure in this film is Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, who played Lester Bangs. And, uh, I mean, an incredibly memorable role when you were thinking about doing this project, Jim, what was your sort of thought process knowing obviously that, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman had passed away a couple of years ago? Well, I think it was just incumbent upon me to make sure that I got enough of him as much as possible to give listeners a sense of who he was at that time in his career. I mean, obviously, it was incredibly sad that we lost him. And just from our interviewing point of view, I would have loved to have sat down with him because he's formidable. And uh, there's a lot of stories in this podcast about the fact that he he is so strong. I mean, look, Cameron Patrick told a story once where he's doing a scene with, with Philip, Philip Seymour Hoffman and uh, Philip yells cut. And it's like, Philip yells cut? And he's like, he starts to go into this harangue about how John Tolleson, the cinematographer, has too many bright lights in Patrick's face. And, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a power move, man. That's a power move for an actor. And you, and you think two things. One is, 
this guy is fearless. And the second is, look at Cameron Crowe and the way he reacts to it. He just calmly said, okay, let, let's take a moment. Here, Patrick, come on over here. I'm sorry your you know, eyes are bothering you, and let's look at the lights. And I mean, there are a lot of directors who um, would have, like, just thrown him off the set at that moment. But um, Philip Seymour often was somebody who was uh, an incredible presence on this film. He was sick the entire time he was shooting this movie, uh, but still was incredible, uh, incredible performance. One last one I want to get to on this that's kind of interesting to me and uh, get your perspective on, and maybe you address this uh, uh, later on in the series, is that at the time, Jim, th- this film was not a uh, like a box office uh, smash by uh, by any means when it came out. I mean, you would know better than me. I'm not even sure if it if it made a profit sort of like in its first uh, you know six months of release. What's happened though clearly is over time it's become you know an incredible. Uh, maybe cult hit is not the right word, but it's become an incredible favorite of so many uh, moviegoers. It's been on television now, like God knows how many times. But it, that's correct, right? Like initially, this was not a this was not a box office smash, and it did, it seemed like it took a little bit of time for it to become the beloved film that it, that we now think of it as. Yeah, I look. I mentioned this in, at the uh, in the first episode because I wanted people to understand. Unfortunately for Cameron and Almost Famous, the weekend that this movie debuted, there was a re-release of The Exorcist with, um, with new footage in it. And so it's like you're going up against, particularly in those times, um, a pretty, pretty big film. And no, it wasn't hit. In fact, Cameron talks very honestly. I talked to him about that, about the reaction. They called on a Monday morning, you know, it's like... This is a bomb. I, I'm not sure if they used the exact word bomb. There was another word they used, but that's another thing that I loved about Almost Famous, which is that it's the kind of movie where, you know, it just starts to build and build, and you have now multi-generational fans. I'm just blown away by the response online about how many people who for 20 years have uh, said that this is their favorite movie. It's the first movie that I ever bought a VHS of, I write it, I watch it every year. It's really, and it was recently on the list of the 100 greatest American films. And so I love the idea that, um, you know, it wasn't a big hit right away, but found its audience. Unfortunately, that is a dynamic that doesn't really exist nowadays. I don't even know, I'm not quite sure whether or not Almost Famous gets made in today's uh, ecosystem. I mean, it could have been made as a indie film, but then you wouldn't have had uh, Cameron wouldn't have been able to shoot the movie in chronological order, which was important to him. They went on location. They were in San Diego. They were in Central Park. They were at the Plaza Hotel. All those things that really, uh, really infused the, the movie with not only authenticity but beauty. And uh, and so, it, I, you know, I don't think that. That movie, at least that way, happens again. So um, hats off to, um, you know, everybody who's supported it since. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be almost famous, The Avengers, basically, if it was coming out today. Um, all right. I, again, I can't recommend uh, um, the the podcast series enough. You can binge on all of the episodes. Five episodes? Am I right about that? Or six? Five, right? Five. 
Okay, five, a lot of work there. Five episodes and literally um, every person, sort of known person in the cast is in it. And again, like Jim mentioned, Zoe Duchanel did not have the necessarily the biggest role in that film, but who's gone on to become a major star um, in there as well, in addition to the uh, in addition to the lead. So that'll do really good for Cadence 13, and, uh, and I'm happy about that. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Um, all right. People come to this podcast, Jim, when you're on for obviously for sports media conversation. So we will get to that now. And the first place that I want to start is the um, the Disney Colin Kaepernick uh, production deal, because this will ultimately lead us into a conversation about uh, how you feel ESPN is covering and discussing the moment when it comes to Black Lives Matter, systemic racism, police brutality, because there's been a, I mean, anybody who sort of has watched ESPN or follows ESPN or is online, been a pretty dramatic shift from the let's stick to sports to we're, we're letting our people speak their truth. So first off, um, what was your reaction to the fact that Kaepernick and Disney are now getting together for a project and Jamel Hill, <laughs> former ESPNer, is one of the producers on it? Well, you know, as the saying goes, if you live long enough, um, it's, uh, look, it is obviously ironic and paradoxical and, uh, it just shows how much ESPN and I guess our culture has traveled in the past several years. Uh, you know, for, it's easy to remember when Jamel and Michael Smith were doing the, six o'clock edition of sports center and ESPN executives were literally going into the background of the shot and taking out, um, artifacts of theirs that they thought were too political. And she was getting, uh, continu- continually, uh, criticized for anything, uh, anything political really. And, uh, and then we, we went and, and saw that ESPN, got so much criticism about being like this quote unquote book network that uh, they really wanted to detach themselves from the political sphere, which is, which became harder and harder because of people like Colin Kaepernick and his, the protests or not the protests, but you know, his, uh, his kneeling and other things. And so there was a big swing. It was definitely a 180 to making sure that those, two paths never crossed. And one of the things that's happened in the last several months is that I think that it was just like a tsunami that so many people at ESPN on air wanted to talk about these issues and wanted, whether it was Black Lives Matter or anything else attendant to that, and they just kind of let the floodgates go down. And so this is the, this is, you know, a very powerful example of the fact that the equation has changed. Uh, You do have to think, though, for a moment about, let's say this thing takes a year and a half or two years. I mean, I don't think they even have a director yet. It's going to be a long process. Um, Are we going to 
all those people who complained to ESPN and ESPN would constantly cite as, you know, our fans don't want to hear politics. Our, our viewers don't want to hear politics. You know, they're, I don't know whether they disappeared, whether they're quiet, whether they've changed their mind or not, but let's just say that some of them have not changed their mind. And when they want to be watching ESPN, they want to be, they want to use it as a, an escape from politics and opinions and movements and everything else. And they just want to be in the sports sanctuary. And so the interesting thing for me is going to be how ESPN reacts once those people start complaining again. And I think that one of the things that ESPN realizes is that, at least I believe, that this is toothpaste out of the tube. They're never going to be able to go back to the the kind of paradigm that they had before, which is insisting that their on-air talent or even executives have a church and state mentality. I think that... Um, I think that those days are pretty much done, but it'll be interesting to see how they react when uh, when those things start to heat up again. All right, so a couple things there that's interesting that I want to get you on. You know, one of the things um, that the release said was that Kaepernick would work closely with the undefeated, which I think people know that's ESPN's vertical on the intersection of race, sports, and culture. And it's very it's worth noting that the undefeated basically um, never went away from these topics. They've covered race and sports and culture um, uh, and that intersection, uh, including the time when ESPN was telling everybody else basically um, not to do this. And the cynic in me thought that the undefeated, uh, Jim, was eventually going to be shuttered when John Skipper left, and I was proven wrong. My, my Happily, by the way, my instincts... Um, were incorrect. So a couple of things there. Do you, um, do you, how do you, how do you, do you, do you, I guess here's sort of what I would say is in terms of putting the toothpaste sort of back in the tube, um, it seems to me that it is impossible to, once you have allowed staffers like Michael Eaves or, uh, Maria Taylor or L. Duncan, et cetera, to sort of be vocal about what they're feeling in relation to race in the United States. I, I don't know how you can then make a dicta, let's say, after the presidential election to say, OK, you're now no longer allowed to do that on your social media feed. But it's ESPN. They could do it. Do you do I guess so we'll start with a couple different things. One, do you anticipate a change in terms of the on-air content? Let's start with the on-air content. Do you think we will see more of these specials heading forward, discussions about race and social justice on air, or do you think that goes away as more sports return and some sense of normalcy returns? No, I think we're going to see them on air as well. Uh, Undefeated did a special, uh, I think, a couple of weeks ago now. It, it was a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I think we're going to see more of those. I think it's a uh, it's something that the network, I think, is going to commit itself to, in part because the network wants to be responsive to the employees who care about it. And the employees are asking network executives, hey, listen, where, where are we on this? Are you guys going to be silent? Where is our opportunity to talk about this on the air and to advocate or to at least uh, discuss all that's at stake here? So I don't think I don't think that's gonna I don't think that's gonna disappear at all. What what about um, what about online in terms of uh, staffers' individual social media feeds of which they've been very active today? 
I don't mean this as a plug, but I did an Origins episode on the history of social media at ESPN, and uh, it's still online if anybody wants to check it out. And it's it was I, I, it's one of my favorite Origin episodes I've ever done because it really went back to how difficult it is to manage this. You have you know at one point ESPN had over a thousand people on air, and they all you know a lot of them have social media accounts, and there it, this is. I don't mean it's, a, it's not a clear – these issues are not clear, and the dividing line isn't clear. There's a lot of gray in the middle, and so how do you police that? How do you – that was one of the reasons why things were so difficult during the waning years of, of Skipper's administration and the beginning of Jimmy's, because how do you – what constitutes a suspension? What con- constitutes a violation? Uh, you know, it's not like – it's not like this is network television and, okay, if you say one of those seven words, then it's easy. You get fined. There's, there's all sorts of nuances and judgment calls. Why does somebody get to say this and nothing happens to them? And why does somebody else say this and it's a two-week suspension? Where this one says something and it's two-week suspension without pay. I mean, it's all, it's really, really difficult. And it's easy for people like us to sit back on Monday mornings and, uh, and, you know, kind of review it and say, oh, well, that was that should have been with pay or that shouldn't have been with pay or they should have been able to say that. But it's really tricky stuff. And I think it's going to become increasingly tricky as we get closer to the election. And I think it's going to also fuel a whole new generation of talent at ESPN who feel like they're they have unbridled enthusiasm uh, for going you know, going to the deep end of the pool and and being able to say what they really feel without any kind of recourse imagined. Do you, um, I mean, again, it's total Monday morning quarterback by me, but when I look back at what Jamel Hill was ultimately suspended for, (laughs) feels pretty quaint. The fact that she was suspended for essentially advocating the way to, uh, the way for NFL players to sort of protest and get the, uh, Get, get you know get their owners to pay attention to to important issues for them. That's, I mean, looking at that Jim years later, that 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 doesn't feel like you're uh, setting uh, the hundred and fifty million dollar uh, studio on fire. You know? Uh, no, I, I disagree with that one because see, people thought that she people thought that she got criticized for she got suspended for criticizing Trump. She got she got brought down to John John Skipper's office and. It was a rather difficult, difficult conversation. Uh, and uh, but no, she look if you if you're ESPN and you have a fifteen point three billion dollar contract with the NFL, and then the co-anchor of your six o'clock Sports Center starts to talk about, you know, in a way suggesting a boycott against Jerry Jones of the Cowboys, um, that's not something that you can ignore. And I think that the the thing about Jamel at that time was that she was so, you know, she may have said what she said, but then she was so aware afterwards that she understood why the network had responded the way it did because of the business part of it. Now, she may have just been saying that publicly and privately she thought it was bonkers, but, but the only point is that you also have to factor in. It's one thing if somebody wants to say on ESPN Air, Black Lives Matter. It's another if they go hell-bent after one of their rights partners, which is their financial lifeline. And I'm going to suggest that 
on-air people at ESPN are going to have to still keep that in mind. And if, if they, it will be very interesting. I mean, we could come up with, we could write a script with a bunch of like test cases. So it's okay to talk about equality and also black lives matter and all these other issues that are attended to that. So how far is too far? So if somebody, if an ESPN personality says that they think that a certain coach or a certain owner is a racist and that people should stop buying that team's jersey or that team's whatever. Like, does that go too far? I'm not sure. Like, what at what point does management start to try and clip that person's wings? You know, um, we're in, again, we're in a whole new area of uncertainty and and grayness, for lack of a better word. And, uh, you know, it's going to play out and it'll it'll be interesting to see because at some point uh, ESPN is going to get uncomfortable with some of these things. And, uh, and they're going to, they're going, I mean, if somebody goes too far and it'll be interesting to see how they respond. Yeah. I mean, me and you have always said this, the selective judgment sort of is always bit them in the ass. And I, I was very public with Kurt Schilling, who I didn't think should have been suspended at the time. And it's sort of my same feeling with Jamel on this one, although Jamel, uh, to her credit, and I, maybe not to her credit, it's not the right thing. Jamel said that, you know, she understood why she was suspended. She never apologized for the Trump stuff, but she did say she understood why she was suspended regarding the uh, the NFL sponsor stuff. But Jim, I would just say this, is there, and, and if, you, if you think there is a difference, I'd actually be curious at, whether you think this is a difference with a distinction. Is there a big difference between Jamel saying what she said and and if I was an ESPN employee right now saying the NFL's return to play plan is a joke. It does not protect the players. They are putting the players in harm's way. They only care about profit above safety. Like R&I in theory by saying that, saying the exact same thing uh, in terms of hurting the bottom line as if I said, you know, Des Bryant and Dak Prescott should say that they're going to boycott this sponsor. They, I, I mean, I, that's that would be my point. Is isn't ultimately both things sort of hurting your rights partner anyway? That's what I mean by that list. We could come up with a lot of different statements. And by the way, uh, you could do like five hundred just about the Washington football team right now. So uh, you know that's a that's a rich target zone. So uh, you know the answer is. I don't know. You don't know. And I'm not sure Jimmy Pitara or HR knows for sure. It's one of the reasons why some of these things, we have to remember that some of these things happen and we don't hear about anything for hours or days or something because it's, there's no playbook. And again, like I come back to, it's not one of those seven words. So they're like inside, they're wrestling with it. And by the way, throughout the course of ESPN suspensions, there has always been a an internal debate. There was an internal debate when when Tony Kornheiser got suspended for criticizing Hannah Storm's clothing. And there were people who thought, you know, he shouldn't have gotten suspended for that. All of these things are you know, are 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 difficult to to decide uh internally as well. Do you um? I, I want to get your because you know Pataro far better than uh, than me. You know, I'll take your calls. I don't think he's taking my calls. Um, and so we have a we have a political uh, presidential election coming up, and it's always been. I mean, you wrote about this in your book a lot. Like ESPN has sort of never really understood how to 
how to uh, handle a presidential election. You know, should Bill Simmons interview Barack Obama? No. Should this person? No. We're not going to interview this. Is, should we have the president pick uh, games for the NCAA tournament? Is that too political? Blah, blah, blah. You know, on and on and on and on. This, of course, is going to be, you know, about as polarizing an election as, as any of us have ever had in our lifetime. The current president of the United States has gone after ESPN a number of times. Um, so he sometimes in his administration will bring ESPN into the fire. And then there's a whole group of people, uh, both in good faith and bad faith, who attack ESPN as, you know, representing whatever, left-wing ideology, liberalism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. H- how do you think they navigate this, Jim, uh, with the covering presidential election? Or is it your same answer, like, you don't think Jimmy Pataro knows how to navigate it because how, can, how on earth can you plan to navigate this, this minefield coming up? Well, that's what I had mentioned. I think it's going to be difficult as we get closer to the election. I'm not sure that I would. I don't know if Jimmy doesn't know how, but I think that it's going to be certainly on a case by case basis. And the other thing that I think is starting to rear its head from conversations that I have inside with people inside ESPN is that. Remember, we have a tendency sometimes to talk about ESPN employees, including on air and off air, you know, as a single entity. And the truth is that it's a big company. It's not as big as it used to be, but it's it's still a big company, thousands of employees. And there isn't one mindset. Um, there are there are conservatives at ESPN. There are liberals at ESPN. The conservatives have always, since the very beginning uh, of ESPN, have always tended to be quieter on the public stage, but not so much inside. And people... At ESPN, uh, particularly people on the left, they know who they think or they know who people are who disagree with them. And I think that there have been certain people at ESPN uh, who have been able to rise above that. And they're just so well-liked that people don't mind if they have a different set of orthodoxies or they're more conservative or whatever. But I think that what's going on right now is that there is, I think, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, tension between um, certain people at ESPN because they look. We we all know. I mean, if you're a Trump supporter and you're thinking about going out to you know, well, pre-COVID, going out to dinner with a bunch of people who hate Trump, you just think about it in a different way. It's much more heightened now. And it's ever been like if you were like a W supporter or a Kerry supporter or an Obama supporter, it just seems like things are much more amplified and much more divided. And I think that that's reflected inside of ESPN. And I know that that is starting to manifest itself in certain ways um, amongst employees. I also feel like the issue of race is not a simple one. And uh, particularly for people who are biracial at ESPN and whether or not certain people think that they are, um, quote unquote, black enough an expression, which I actually um, was quoted, uh, somebody said, which was uh, about somebody. So there's a, it's a difficult thing um, for ESPN externally. And I think it's a tricky thing for them internally. And, you know, um, you have to be careful with it. Yeah, uh, this story, uh, sort of note Ben Strauss did a very good piece on this uh, a couple of weeks ago about sort of uh, the changing ESPN um, in the, uh, you know, after George Floyd's murder. And so this is going to, um, this issue is not going to go away. 
and ESPN is going to be in the spotlight, and it's going to be very interesting to watch, at least for me, how um, how they handle what will inevitably be criticism. You are correct about that, Jim, um, for sure. The last thing I uh, I want to finish on is, um, you know, ESPN announced its new radio lineup, and probably the, the, the biggest news from that was that Mike Golick will no longer be on ESPN Radio, he um, he'll be leaving the Golick and Wingo show, which is uh, which is ending um, for a new morning show with Keyshawn Johnson, Jay Williams, and Zubin Mahenti. Uh, Mike Greenberg, interestingly enough, will go back and become a uh, a host for a noon to two o'clock show. I want to start just on one thing with uh, with Mike Golick, uh, Jim, because he was certainly prominent in your book, and he's been a major figure on ESPN Radio. That was a massive business with him and that him and Goldberg develop. Uh, what was your reaction when you saw that Mike Golick would no longer be on ESPN radio after a couple decades? Well, I guess it's a two-part thing. One is the initial is, okay, it's the uh, executives that uh, are in charge of that, and they made a decision that, or if that was done in part with Golick, uh, that his radio days are over, that's one thing. The other thing, though, is how it gets done and what you say about somebody who has been such a important part of your operation for so many years. And uh, not just in terms of the dollars and the sponsorships and all the airtime and tonnage that he was uh, contributed to, but also in terms of, in terms of what, what he brought to the culture and the fact that he, this was a valued employee. I didn't see a lot of, uh, of communication from ESPN about his years of service. And uh, I think that I, 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 I may have missed it. And, and that's fine. If they did it, maybe, maybe I missed it. But if they did it, I don't think they did a lot of it because I, I certainly, um, you know, kind of I watch everything that comes out of there. And I thought that was kind of unfortunate. Um, I don't think it has to be binary. It's particularly if somebody, I mean, unless it's been unbelievable extenuating circumstances, you know, they went out and shot somebody or something. I mean, it's like, come on, let's, let's, let's make sure that we take this moment to, um, to be thankful and to uh, say some nice things about, you know, a lot of years of service. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, there was some, but yeah, not, not, we, we haven't, and maybe that comes at the end of the show run, but we have not seen that fanfare. I think that, you would think would be um, would be indicative of a guy with that service. I have to admit, Jim, and, and I, again, I know you don't cover ESPN Radio on a daily basis, but I, I'm surprised that uh, management could not create a solution where Mike Greenberg continues to appear on an ESPN Radio product. He's 57 years old. I mean, th- this is not, you know, it's not a 95-year... You mean Mike Golick. I'm sorry, Mike, Mike Golick. Yeah, this is not a... I'm sorry, Mike Golick, yeah. This is not a 95-year-old guy, and... He, he's got a lot of years in radio. He's got familiarity with the audience. There's a comfort level with the guy. So I have to admit that I think that was one of my surprises was that, okay, if you want to end this morning show, I understand that. But to not retrofit him somewhere surprised me. Surprised you? Well, so, look, I mean, I, I admit I have not done any reporting on this, but there are a couple independent variables that we could quickly look to. One is, was there a financial aspect of this? You know, let's just say... It could be there have been times when ESPN let go. There's, there's, you know, a contract is expiring in eight months or whatever, and to renew it is going to be, you know, a big chunk of change. So you think, well, you know what, as long as they're making these changes, we're going to do that. I'm not sure if that was the case here. Second is, you know, were there 
you know, was there just too much water over the bridge in terms of uh, the dynamic between the person and management? Uh, I'm not saying that, again, that that's the case with Kohler. It could have been. Um, people who, you know, asked, were asking me, wait a second, if Greenberg coming back to radio, why couldn't Greenberg and Golick get back together again? And that's like, you know, one of the things that we've seen in a lot of different partnerships through the years is that sometimes you just can't, you just can't go back. And um, there's just too much, there's, there's too much bad, there's too much ill will and, um, and or there's just too many difficulties or people have moved on in their own ways in which make it impossible and prohibitive for that dynamic to be, you know, that magic of that dynamic to be recreated. But um, it's very clear, as you say, that, uh, again, we don't know. Maybe this was partly Golik's decision, but certainly um, this is a guy who seems to us that, uh, you know, he could have uh, they could have found a way. Yeah, so I'll just I'll give you a couple of things that I know. One, um, ESPN is very interested in Mike Golick continuing with the company as a uh, looks to be as a college football analyst. I think they have. Uh, uh, I think that would be something that they would want. I don't know how he feels about that, but I think he would have interest in that, from what I understand. And so there, there, there should be a partnership there. So that's point one. Point two. Oh, wait, can I ask you a question? I already mean to interrupt. Sure. Ahead. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. I don't mean to interrupt. If that's the case, if it's a possibility then, you know, executives get paid to, like, make decisions and make things happen. All you have to do is sit down and say, okay, look, radio's over. We want you to be a college football analyst. Let's, are you interested? Yes, you are. Okay, let's make a deal. And then make that part of the overall announcement. Yeah, I agree. I, I, agree. I mean, I, I think Mike Golick wanted to continue in radio. So this gets to my next thing, and you'll have some insight into this. So I think the Golic camp clearly would have welcomed, maybe welcomed this a little too strong, but they would have been amenable to working with Mike Greenberg again. And it seems like, at least from Mike Golick's wife, that Mike Greenberg wasn't necessarily interested in that kind of reunion. Um, and so, again, it makes it gets back to your point. You know, sometimes you can't recreate the magic. I wrote you know, chapter and verse about that. They had a very acrimonious last run there at ESPN. But so here's what I would say to you, Jim, because you've talked to more management people than me. That would be a mega success story for ESPN to pit Golick and Greenberg again in the middle of the day, a non-traditional place where maybe they can get some traction. They'd have a great sort of positive story that they could spin. Uh, Mike Greenberg makes a ton of money for them. So they, you know, you would think that Mike Greenberg and his representatives would would sort of want to work for ESPN, given that they paid him a shit ton of money. How come a management person doesn't say, listen, Mike and Mike, we want to make this work again. How can we make this work for two hours a day uh, from noon to two? Why doesn't management make that happen? All right. I'm going to answer this under the scenario that what you just suggested before is true, that Greenberg didn't want to do it. Okay, so come to me. Oh, we want to do Mike and Mike again. Yeah, I don't want to do it. Well, but but we think it would be fantastic. Yeah, I don't want to do it. Well, we're paying you a lot of money. Yeah, I know I'm worth it. Um, but, you know, for that money, for over $6 million a year, we expect you to do what we want. No, I'm not going to do it. Um, go ahead and try and make me. Uh, you know, you've already put me through hell on Get Up. Uh, you know what? I don't want to do that. I'm I'm a bigger personality now than, uh, than I was back then when we did that. I don't want to be part of a team anymore. I want to be my own guy. I want to be able to do my own show. And you know what? I'm not going to do it. I mean, what, like, what, what do you do as an executive then at that point? 
Like you can't fake it, you know. I guess you're right because because if you're not gonna if you're not gonna blow the talent out, maybe you don't have any leverage. Then is what you're saying. I mean, the only way you do it is if you have it in the contract. But then, even if you have it in the contract, let's just say that Greenberg had a deal, a contract where if at any point ESPN management wanted to put Mike and Mike back together again, he would be obligated to be on that show, and he'd say, "Okay, uh, yeah, well, I'm telling you right now, I." I didn't even like, I didn't want to agree to that in the contract, but okay, if you're going to really try and enforce that, go ahead. And they take the first show and he's not, a, he's not Lawrence Olivier. I mean, if he's not into it, he's not going to be into it. It needs it, for a show like that, for a show like that to work, you need to understand that both people are coming there with all eight cylinders firing, that they really want to recreate the, the, you know, the partnership and you'd be an idiotic executive if you forced the guy into it. And I know that he doesn't have that language in the contract anyway. So basically you're shit out of luck. Yeah. All right. That's well said. And you do, you, you argue that well and, and you know, that would be the answer, but that, you know, man, it feels like that could be, that'd be, I feel like that would be beneficial to, to both of them. I will just, I will just end on this. Um, I, what the, the, the change in ESPN radio lineup that I think has the most promise is Chinea Gumake, who is a current WNBA player, uh, not playing this year, I believe, but a, I'm a phenomenal player from an amazing basketball family and Michael Olick's son, Michael Olick Jr. That's from four to seven. Uh, that's a show to watch in terms of two talents, uh, that could develop. Um, I think that has actually a shot to be a pretty good national hit. But regardless of anything else, all this stuff, it's very, Jim, and you know this, even though you don't cover radio, it's just very hard for national radio shows to have any kind of traction uh, locally. Local sports talk is, is, you know, sports radio is local in nature. And if you have a very strong local program in drive or afternoons, it's just going to be very hard for any of these ESPN national uh, personalities to, to get traction. I mean, the judo move nowadays is for those personalities, and it is exciting for that show. I mean, that, they're both great young talents. And the judo move is to make it more about the personalities themselves and less about actual sports content. And so, you know, if you're in your car or if you're somewhere during those times, you want to just hang out with those two people because you find that they're so engaging. If you go there trying to figure out, you know, why the Yankees, are having problems because of, uh, you know, bullpen problems, then you, you might as well just go to, you know, local sports. Exactly. Yeah, it's well said. And again, I think it's just also good. Uh, we have not seen a ton of women of color uh, fronting these shows. And now we do with Chanae, who's not just a moderator, but gets to uh, opine on her opinion. So that's that's cool. Uh, the last thing I want to ask you, Jim, is... Uh, if you want to, if you want to provide my audience with the status of this, uh, wh- where do you stand philosophically on doing an update on your ESPN book? Because so much has happened since the conclusion of these guys have all the fun. Uh, well, I have uh, about six hundred pages of notes and uh, and some, and and some interviews, uh, and uh, so. Um, you know, uh, I've been keeping track ever since uh, the the first volume, so to speak, was published. But uh, I have um, I have a book that I'm working on right now that I have to finish first, and uh, we'll see what the world is like after that. But um, I, uh, you know, I I think I may have mentioned to you before, but I tell my kids that Noah built the ark before it started raining. So for me, it was just better <laughs> to uh, to start 
kind of keep keep reporting and keep all these um, things that I hear. Um, you know, uh, keep keep a file and keep writing about it and uh, making notes to the file and uh, and keep on going. So then it wouldn't be like in a year from now if I decide, oh yeah, I want to do the second volume. Then I have to all of a sudden go back and recreate things. Um, people have been people inside the company and outside the company have been very good about um, doing interviews with me where they talk about certain things that happened and. Uh, you know, so uh, I guess it's a work in progress, but haven't really, um, you know, haven't made a firm decision yet. All right, don't you, don't George R. R. Martin us, man. Let's get that Game of Thrones out before it's uh, before it's too late. Um, all right, Jim Miller is the uh, narrator of uh, a new Origins podcast on Almost Famous, the Cameron Crowe coming-of-age film. He's, of course, a best-selling author on books on CAA, ESPN, Saturday Night Live. He's working on a current HBO book now. Uh, I mean, he's, he's doing it all, basically, and, and somehow hanging out with his kids as well uh, during, this, uh, during this pandemic. All right, Jim, it's been a while. I'm glad you're back providing information for this podcast and i wish you nothing but success with uh the uh almost famous podcast but it's going to be huge i I mean i've just even anecdotally i've already seen people seem to dig it so uh so i'm happy to see that believe me if it's going to be huge it's going to be because of the movie and cameron crowe and the gang not because of me well of course all right well i mean you're very humble but you you did a good job and uh and thank you for not producing this podcast during it i appreciate it all right jim miller everybody thank you jim thank you jim Okay, thank you so much. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all right i bring in my next guest and as i said at top uh kurt streeter is a reporter for uh the new york times uh previously worked at the la times she google his uh his uh, exceptional work that he's done over his journalism career. He's on this podcast for his extensive reporting on Maya Moore, the WNBA star who left professional basketball to help free a man she believed was wrongly convicted. Uh, and Maya Moore's story is just sort of incredible. It would have been incredible just 
on basketball alone, given her credentials. But the fact that at 30 years old, she athlete of her stature walking away is just almost inconceivable. And Kurt Streeter has done some remarkable reporting on Maya Moore's story and Maya Moore freeing Jonathan Irons out of prison. And he joins me on the sports media podcast. Uh, Kurt, uh, good to talk to you. And uh, you're in one of my favorite cities, Seattle. So you're already fortunate to start starting there. Oh, nice to be here. I wish, uh, well, it's sort of a classic uh, Seattle day today, summer day, uh, which means it's a uh, it's gray, and it looks like it may rain soon. So <laughs> we have a little bit too much of that in the summer, but it, but at least it's green and fresh air and beautiful mountains and, and water. So, all right. Well, if you see Sean Kemp or Detlef Shrimp, send him my best. I always, always, <laughs> always miss the Seattle Supersonics. Um, all right. First off, you you've done you you have really I think you and maybe uh, Katie Barnes have sort of been the two reporters that I've uh, of ESPN who I've really just read everything and consumed everything I can on Maya Moore's story. So first off, um, yeah, how did you first become aware of what Maya was doing? I, I know her walking away from the game was major news and any sports fan could have seen that. Um, but clearly you invested yourself in the story and clearly you you got the trust of some of the subjects involved. So can you take my listeners sort of just um, – the be- for you, the beginning of this reporting journey with Maya Moore? Yeah, well, first started when Maya, uh, early last year, made, her, made the announcement in the Players' Tribune in a, uh, in a, a first-person essay, uh, made the announcement that she was leaving the game to take a hiatus for at least a year. Uh, it was a short essay, very personal um, and it, and it, you know, she described her reasons, which were really, um, you know, in, in large part to help uh, Jonathan Irons, who's a, who was a convicted man who she's known for some time and had b- believed in his innocence, so she was going to help him uh, try and, and back his uh, his appeals, uh, his legal appeals, and trying to get out of prison as best she could. She wanted to devote you know more time to that and be able to devote. Uh, it, herself fully to it. She also wanted to step away to, you know, her needed to step away because, you know, the grind of, of uh, uh, basketball for the top, you know, women's players is, 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 is really a, it's a year long thing as they try to maximize their, their earnings in the, in their prime. And she has had to play not only in the WNBA, but then in foreign leagues, um, really her entire adulthood. And with, just very very little breaks. So I think, frankly, a, a, a part of you know I know that a, that a part of her stepping away was also just pure burnout. So it was kind of a combination of burnout um, and wanting to be there to to help uh, Jonathan Irons in any way she possibly could. So she she very much believes in justice. Uh, I have I took a personal interest in this. Well, really, I think partly. I mean, for for many reasons. First of all, you know, I, I'm an African African American man, so I could relate to some of the issues that Jonathan Irons was bringing up in his case and in reading about his case. Um, uh, I have had family members who've been caught up in the justice system, you know, and and uh, and, and, and you know, in, in ways that were are, had deeply affected my life. Uh, I also have a brother who is a uh, who was a state court of appeals judge in California, so one step below the, the state supreme court. So, I'm really, um, on a personal level, kind of, uh, it, it, it kind of, th- those things really connected with me about this story. And then, 
You know, maybe unlike maybe many of my uh, colleagues in sports, um, I, I'm actually still fairly new to covering sports. Uh, uh, you know, I've been at the Times for a few years. I was at ESPN uh, then for a couple of years before that. But then I was at the Los Angeles Times for about 15 years. And in most of that time, I covered the city of L.A. And, and a good chunk of that, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, uh, in, in prisons or writing about prisons. Um, I've witnessed an execution at San Quentin. Um, I spent literally an entire year documenting um, uh, uh, prisoners inside a uh, prison hospice in Vacaville, California. Uh, I've written about judges and the justice system, spent time with gangs in Compton and Watts. So, I don't know, this story really kind of connected all these, all these strains of my life personally, my reporting life, my personal life. And I reached out to, um, uh, and, I, and I think then that will help me kind of bring a certain kind of background and empathy to it. I reached out to, um, to Maya through her agent, and, you know, that, that took some time. Maya's a proof. She is a very careful, um, she's a very careful person, very uh, aware of her image, and very, she doesn't do anything kind of off the cuff. So it took it took a while to kind of gain her gain her trust and to kind of get in there and to meet her. And I went, you know, I went to Jefferson City, uh, where uh, Jonathan Irons is or has had been in in prison, and Maya was there for to visit him. I went down there to to basically meet her. I also met her in Portland when she went to the Nike Nike campus, and all just sort of like building this relationship, building this trust. I went down to Atlanta then and spent time with her. I, then I, I went to Jefferson City and, and was able to get inside the prison and meet with with Jonathan Irons for for an hour long prison interview. So this was a kind of a slow. I just I just sort of let it unfurl um, slowly, and I didn't really push things with Maya. I always wanted to do things that were, you know, that would make her feel comfortable. And I, you know, I'm not the type of reporter that's like super pushy, any, you know, and. You know, I'm very kind of sensitive to my to my story subjects, especially if it's an, an issue like this. So I think Maya really appreciated that, and then we really sort of began to click. And she she opened up quite a bit to me, and Jonathan opened up. I started to try to get a handle on on the legal issues as best I could, um, and um, we we just went from there. I wrote a and a big narrative, you know, fairly lengthy narrative uh, about the case that came out uh, last year. I think it was in June. So that was sort of the first big story about this case um, beyond uh, her Players' Tribune um, piece. And I don't think anybody else wrote about it. Uh, I was kind of the first one to be able to kind of get in, in, in with, with, into the layers of, of the case. And then I just... With that, I just continue to follow it just just normally. One of the things that uh, struck me, not surprised, by the way, was that the New York Times, I thought, really um, gave this story the 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 kind of run it deserved it uh, from good placement to multiple follow-up stories for you. Um, I don't want to presume anything, but my sense is that you must have gotten pretty good cooperation from your sports editor and from the paper at large to, to give this story the kind of weight it seemed to deserve. Yeah, I didn't have to push that at all. I mean, I think um, the, the section editor, uh, Randy Archibald, is my, you know, basically my editor, 
Um, he and I see very eye to eye on all these subjects, and um, he was very into the story and really supportive of it and really let me take my time with it. Um, so there was never really any doubt, I think, that we were, you know, about, about placement and about the, the, the paper really backing, backing the piece. So I think it's also kind of, you know, this is the kind of piece that I was, you know, I was hired to come to the times to, to do, I mean, with, with this in mind, and I, I enjoy sports. I love, you know, I love sports, but I really try to see, try to find this kind of story almost exactly. It's sort of right in my wheelhouse. Um, so, you know, I've been at the paper for what, two and all close to three years. And since this is why they brought me aboard, I don't, you know, I think that they were going to, you know, they were going to give it a good push. And I was very pleased with the way they did, you know, they, they've handled all of that. Kurt, the reason I asked that is, um, is for this reason. If you substituted Maya Moore's name for LeBron James or Steph Curry or Kevin Durant, uh, we this story would be would have crossed over far from sports into you know uh, the a to use a newspaper term like the a one of all our lives it, it would have led cable news it would have been a major global story and so i ask you from your perspective how much do you think gender played in this not being a bigger story. And that doesn't take away from your work, and I know ESPN and others profiled it, but that that was one of my thoughts. That it was such an extraordinary thing. The best player in her sport, a major sport, in uh, globally, basketball, doing this, yet it, it did not reach, I thought, the, the levels the story sort of deserved, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, and Maya's not only the best, you know, like, literally, literally like, if you look at her record and, and I mean, she's one, yeah, you know, a lot of people say she's the best female or, or one of the best female players, but I mean, her, she stacks up, her accomplishments stack up with yeah, LeBron. She's, I mean, she is a, all, all, all top, yeah, top five, top 10, all time oh, winner, regardless of uh, gender, for sure. And when you watch her, when you watch her clips, I mean, she is just a phenomenal athlete. Um, so, you know, a lot of, I know a lot of people sort of, uh, bang on uh on women's basketball really unfairly uh to my mind and but uh she is just eye-popping how how you know incredible she is on the court so i would say um yeah i mean i i i i i hit on this in a you know i had an a1 story what late last week about this and how and i think i'd, I'd mentioned that in, in the piece that you know you know if, if this had if basically, if this had been a male athlete of, of the same stature, it would have been much, much bigger news. Even for all the, even for all the play that we got, we gave it. I think we we did a, you know, we did a fantastic job. I mean, that that first story, I think it, I think it might have taken up the entire front of the Sunday sports page. It might have, I can't, again, I don't have it in front of me, but it was like, you know, we blew it out. Uh, it didn't make a one. Uh, probably uh, if it was LeBron, it probably, you know, probably would have made a one, you know, uh, th- that first story, you know? Um, and uh, so overall, I'm very proud of how we've displayed it, but yes, in the larger uh, sphere, uh, definitely would have had de- definitely gender plays a role um, in that, you know, uh, other outlets and just general attention from the public wasn't that great. I mean, I was with Maya, you know, in Portland, in Atlanta, in Jefferson City, during the time, you know, after she made an announcement and, and you know, 
Uh, Maya Morgan walked the, war, the walk the streets of you know of major cities, and people not really like even recognize her. There's no way recognize her or anything. You know, uh, that would never happen to LeBron. And if and then if something big like this had happened, and LeBron was behind it, and people would even you know definitely the you know, as famous as he is, he would be get, he'd get another push just for that. You know, if he if he did something like this or or a Steph, you know, um, so yeah, I mean, gender definitely plays a role. I mean, it plays a role in really, I mean, how women's sports is is just all you know is viewed in, in every realm. It's one of the things that I'm trying to do in, in, in my role. I mean, I really, I, I'm really trying to advocate and be advocate and and and, and push uh, to write more about women and. Um, just as much as I can use my platform. You know, I've been writing about the WNBA a, a bit, and I wrote about Sabrina Ionescu, um, and we uh, big piece on her a few months ago. And I'm going to try to continue to do that. Uh, I feel a great affinity to the kind of you know to female athletes in that you know. I mean, look, I mean, in my position, uh, I'm one of the only African Americans in in you know, and sort of my, uh, sort of at my level in my, in, in, in print. And there's certainly not enough of us. I've always sort of felt like an outsider. <laughs> so I can very much empathize with, you know, people that are pushing to try to be more known and have their voices heard. And, um, yeah, um, that's kind of, again, personally, that's being an outsider has sort of been a, a dominant theme in my entire life. So, so, and that uh, that uh, energizes and animates um, a ton of my journalism. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, I, obviously, I'm a white male. I can't say I'm an outsider. Uh, I did cover women's college basketball for Sports Illustrated for 12, 15 years. And so I have an affinity for um, women's sports and those athletes as well. Uh, and I think my affinity comes from the fact that um, I always felt fortunate to be in their presence because they have such – um, unbelievable stories to tell that nobody really tells. And so I'm glad that you, um, I'm glad that you are there and, and thinking about that. And so I have two last things for you. And one of them is on the WNBA, you know, in reading your work on Maya and obviously seeing the sort of remarkable thing that she was able to do in, in getting this man released from, from prison, um, was, you know, the, the WNBA Kurt and particularly the Minnesota Lynx they were way ahead of the curve. That whole league's been ahead of the curve on social justice forever. I remember the WNBA players in 2016, Maya, Lindsey Whalen, I think Rebecca Brunson and Simone Augustus wearing change starts with us black shirts. And um, the Minnesota police, the off-duty police said they would never uh, work security again at the um, at the Lynx games. I mean, they were, <laughs> they were on this, they were in activism long before I feel like uh, so many others caught up. So when, you know, the league is about to start again, Kurt, and so much, um, so much attention has been on, and understandably so, the, w the NBA working with NBA players um, in terms of sort of activism being part of the equation here, getting publicity, speaking their truths. But the WNBA, which has been doing this longer, I feel like, than the NBA, is also back as well. They're heading back for their games, and I wonder if you have a sense as to um, how that's going to play out. We are we are watching it sort of in real time with uh, Kelly Loeffler and WNBA players saying that 
we want this woman to have no part in in our league. She does not re- represent who we are about. Um, I think it's going to be very interesting to to see. I mean, uh, in that uh, you're right, the the league has been at the at the forefront pushing pushing uh, social justice and and very aware of what's going on. Um, sort of in, in keeping actually with a, a deep tradition of of female athletes, uh, women athletes speaking out. I mean, uh, going back decades, right? Um, and even beyond Billie Jean, which Billie Jean King, which people often think of far, you know, far beyond her um, for all the great work that she's done. But there's people in the '60s and beyond who, who are who are often sort of forgotten about. Um, I think the league. I think the players in the league are really fine. Are I mean, they're just they're emboldened, and then well, they should be. And I, I'm not sure how that Atlanta situation is going to kind of turn out. It doesn't seem like it's, I'll, I'll be watching closely, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's going to come to a head. I, I, I think um, I I'm trying to, you know, I, I've been writing these as told to pieces with Brianna Stewart, so it'll be it'll be you know, funding and, and hopefully enlightening to get some sort of monthly insight from, from Brianna as she goes through this is through what hopefully we'll, well, we'll see if there's a season, um, you know, with the COVID situation and Brianna, by the way, you know, right. She's unbelievable, unbelievable player, arguably the best player in the world when she's, when, when healthy, she's coming off an injury and she's white, uh, of course. And, you know, I, I wrote recently about how, She's really, uh, you know, uh, standing up and, and, and how she's, you know, like a lot of white athletes now, it's really like, you know, hey, I, I, I've got to speak out. Um, it's, I've, I've got to help. I've got to help, you know, stand behind my black teammates and, and stand behind these issues. So I think the WNBA is going to be totally, I think those players are going to be totally on it. Um, I know Brianna, you know, last I talked to her, it was, uh, it's been a couple of weeks, but she was really excited to try to keep the ball rolling. And, um, you know, everything that I'm seeing out of the league and the, the, the players, is they're, they're really feeling, uh, you know, they're not, they're not going to be quiet. That's for sure. The, uh, the last one for me, Kurt, and I think you probably have as, as good insight as anybody on earth on this one, is my, my more is not old as an athlete. Uh, she walked away in her prime. Uh, she's, I think she's 31 or 32. You, you can correct me. I mean, she's, uh, she's 31. Yeah. Okay. 31 years old. Um, at that kind of skill level, that kind of person who cares about, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of fitness and strength and, and getting new things to add to her game. I mean, this is somebody who could play for a long time if she wanted to. The question is, is that of any interest left to her? Do you anticipate she will return to professional athletics, or do you think that maybe she has already moved on to a different stage in her life? That is a tough one to answer. I mean, yes. Maya is the kind of player that could play till she's 40, right? Like Sue, you know, Sue Bird and, or, you know, her late 30s, no doubt. Um, and keep adding wrinkles to her game. Will she come back? She said, uh, so uh, I had a piece at the start of the year where she announced that the one-year hiatus that she had announced in the Players' Tribune, you know, now in early 2019, she was extending that for an entire year. So I think that was in January or so. Um, 
and um, and the so she's now taking another year off, and she's basically told me and uh, I've published this that she's not going to make a decision then on the future now until January of next year. That's hard for me to say. I I know from my sense is that she's very happy with where she is right now. And and I don't know that it really wouldn't surprise me if she doesn't play again. Um, But um, I don't think she's still in shape. She's, she's definitely out. She's definitely leaving the, the door open to, to playing more. Um, She loves what she's doing right now. And not only with the work with Jonathan and then trying to be a voice for reform, particularly her focus is on prosecutor, prosecutorial reform um, and getting uh, prosecutors to sort of to to uh, do their jobs, di- you know, differently. Um, but uh, she's really enjoying her time with her family. She lives in Atlanta with her with her mom, uh, her godparents are close by or aunt and uncle godparents and she's got other family in atlanta i just man she's got she's very involved in her church there uh i mean deeply deeply involved in in her she's just i don't know whenever i when i've talked to her i just get the sense she's just in a great place right now so it's i don't know <laughs> I, yeah it's, it's anyone's guess but i do know that she's I don't get the sense that she's just dying to, to play again. She's in this moment where she's taking where she is now and she's just loving it. And I think in January, then we'll, we'll just see, but she's very much in the moment right now. It's pretty cool to see, you know, if you think about how much she sacrificed and how much, you know, it's terrible that I think, you know, that women's players of, of her level have to, you know, play without breaks and, <laughs> And can't have, you know, any time with their families, you know, really, I mean, relatively, relative to the men. So, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm really happy for her right now. I guess that's a non-answer. <laughs> no, well, but I, it really is no, I mean, selfishly, I think all of us who love the game want to see her play, but I, I, I can totally understand uh, her not coming back. And this is just a guess just from reading from afar, including your pieces. If I had to, if you asked me today, I would guess she's not coming back, but that's just, just more of, of a guess than, than anything else. But her, uh, you know, I think her, yeah, her, her, her human legacy is unbelievable. Not to mention her, uh, her basketball legacy at this point. Yeah. And I, if I could, if, oh, you know, you know, could I, if I, she is just, a special human being. I mean, I got to say, you know, I mean, she's just like, just, and you can, and I, what I mean is, you know, of course what she's done here and and advocating for John, Jonathan and all of that's great. But when you meet her on a personal level and you spend time with her, I mean, she is, she is, uh, um, she's just has this, this humble, quiet, grace about her and yet the strength that um i don't know it's just remarkable it's just uh you can almost you should it's almost like she doesn't really have to say much but you can kind of feel her presence um uh it's just yeah i I was just honored to be part of the ride really that's well said i haven't talked to a lot of the yukon people over the years from uh gino or emma and chris daly and uh shay ralph etc it's basically 
it was one of a kind basically they sort of uh you know they cut the when when Maya Maya's Maya a singular figure and sort of cut the mole with her and we're not going to see her kind again so I uh, um, I'm glad you got a chance to experience that sort of uh, closer than probably any other reporter um, Kurt Streeter is a New York Times sports reporter but has a background um, far beyond sports and news uh, check out his work for the New York Times and then previously LA Times and ESPN you can follow his work on Twitter. Uh, Kurt, uh, thank you for the time. And just, uh, I can't tell you how, uh, appreciative I am as someone who was reading those stories, just, uh, the amount of reporting and, and work that you did on those. So, uh, thanks for joining me today on the sports media podcast and continued success heading forward. Uh, thanks for having me anytime. All right. Back in the studio, my thanks to Jim Miller and Kurt Streeter for their time. And, uh, what was definitely an interesting, conversation if you like these kind of um subjects please head to our archives page at the sports media of the richard deitch podcast uh last couple guests the athletics rhiannon walker espn's mike reese and josh tolentino that uh was a multiple part conversation on a number of topics rhiannon covers the washington football team for the athletic mike reese um on uh, Cam Newton coming to New England and what what that means sort of for Patriots media and uh, Josh Tolentino on uh, the challenges of covering MLB amid COVID-19 as well as um, his experience facing anti-Asian xenophobia during his life and specific to uh, his work in the field. Prior to that, Michael Lee, senior writer for The Athletic and Washington Post writer Robert Klemko, Jay Donde before that. Uh, really enjoyed the panel I did with Lisa Wilson, ESPN's Michael Lees. Lisa Wilson's the uh, head of the athletic football silo for us. Uh, Sportsnet's Donovan Bennett and Raina Cash of the Savannah Morning News on um, just how they were processing. their four black journalists, how they were processing um, the events in the United States over the last couple of months. I should say four black sports journalists. Uh, John O'Rand before that, Katie Strang, and then uh, ESPN analyst Booger McFarland. And just go down the list, Bob Costas we had a couple months ago, uh, Sean McDonough, uh, Jim Ross, the AEW outstanding announcer, Scott Van Pelt. You uh, you should find some stuff you like. Please uh, give us a five-star review and uh, and let us know in the comments section that you like it. That's uh, That's how this podcast sticks around. That is something certainly the bosses of Cadence 13 look at. All right, let me thank Sean Sherry and Patrick Antonetti for all their work with this podcast. Thanks to Chris Corker and Spencer Brown, John McDermott. This is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast. Stay safe, everybody. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.